Well, good morning, everyone. Love you all very, very much, and it's really good to see everyone uh, who's here this morning and uh, everyone visiting with us. It's always a joy to have visitors from out of town uh, in Savannah. Just appreciate you sacrificing time on your traveling uh, to be with God's people and to encourage us, and hopefully uh, you're encouraged as well, uh, obviously just by nature of what it is we're doing here, even if not by us particularly. Um, and the lesson this morning is going to be uh, a little unusual. Uh, you could probably tell by the, the title. Um, this isn't a clickbait title. It, it really is the point of the lesson, uh, the wisdom of neglect. Uh, and you may, be, may have noticed even from the scripture reading, just the nature of how uh, this principle is in this section we're going to be reading. Um, before we get there again, we, I will read that again in just a moment. Neglect can seem like an inherently negative word, right? Uh, we tend to talk about neglect in terms of things we should be doing that really we're ignoring or being distracted from. Uh, but really the reality is that we just, we have a limited amount of time. Uh, we have a limited capacity, both with uh, emotionally, mentally, again, with time. Uh, we're, we're very limited. And there's only so many things we can focus on. There's only so many things we can be worried about. There's only so many priorities we can have. We've got to make decisions. And the reality is, when we say yes to one thing, we are implying that we're actually saying no to something else or something else, someone else, right? So it can be difficult to navigate uh, a subject like this as we're kind of going to work through these points. And I think a culture that around us tends to be relentlessly busy. And oftentimes that's not even in productive ways. Uh, even just with, you know, relentlessly being entertained, uh, stimulated, you know, with social media and the access we have to that, there's just a, a pressure to always be relentlessly busy. Uh, but in actuality, Jesus teaches us that there's a value to neglecting things that to a worldly perception may seem productive, but are actually getting in the way uh, of much more important things. Um, you'll notice through the lesson, if you're visiting, there's Spanish on the board. Usually there's someone who visits here who does not speak English, um, but he wasn't able to make it to the assembly this morning. So uh, there'll just be Spanish subtitles under, underneath everything. Well, let's read uh, Luke chapter 10, 38 through 42 again. And we'll kind of work through the story just a little bit here. Uh, but the story itself with Jesus and Martha's home and him interacting with Martha and Mary here, uh, this is going to be a platform for kind of figuring out some of the principles of the story. And then uh, really the last parts of the lesson are just going to be building uh, application points and principles uh, from what's going on here and learning from what's going on here. So Luke chapter 10, 38 through 42 again. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up She came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Uh, this is a brief story. Uh, but it's, I think, extremely profound. And again, kind of the nature of the title uh, has lessons that I think are easy to overlook, uh, but are extremely helpful as we work on maturing and just navigating uh, 
our lives in a way that is rooted in faith and prioritizing spiritual things rather than just worldly things. So getting into the story here, Jesus is welcomed into Martha's home. And just kind of give you a picture of the people who are involved here. Mary and Martha are two sisters who seem to be older single women. And both of these women are in multiple accounts in scripture. And every impression we get is that these are two women who love Jesus very deeply. These are two women who had a very deep, very profound faith. Uh, They loved the Lord. They had faith in him. They interacted with him often. Uh, We see in John chapter 11 that Mary and Martha had a brother named Lazarus, who is the centerpiece of John chapter 11 when Lazarus is risen from the dead. Uh, In John chapter 12, it's actually clarified that this woman near the end of Jesus's life who anointed Jesus with very expensive perfume. Remember, that's the instance where Judas got really upset and said, what a waste. This perfume could have been sold and given to the poor. Uh, it It was a massive amount of money. Well, John 12 clarifies that was Mary, this Mary, actually, who did that. Um, and I may not remember to bring this up. Uh, I didn't have this on my notes, but just for maybe your own tucking this away. In John 12, when Mary anoints Jesus, it actually says Martha was serving in that account as well. And it seems like there's an implication that Martha learned the lesson here. Not that she stopped serving when Jesus was around but that she had a much more mature mentality about it and she could serve without becoming frustrated or embittered by other things that were going on. Uh, Martha just seems to be much more of a person inclined toward uh, toward service. And again, as we're, we're trying to do God's will, as we're wanting to do good, we're wanting to be involved with people, uh, there's just a lot of nuance. There's a lot of subtlety to lessons that we need to learn that require a lot of reflection on the deeper concepts of what it means to apply the mind of Christ in different situations. So again, we'll we'll work through that here. So Jesus is in Martha's home. And I want you to think about the pressure that would have been on Martha here, right? Imagine it's not just Jesus. I know it only mentions Jesus, but who would have been with Jesus? Well, at the very least, you would have had his 12 disciples, right? It's highly unlikely, though, that it would have only been the 12 disciples. It's very likely that this would have been a crowd of people I wouldn't even be surprised if this was an instance where there were people even at the door of Martha's house because Jesus is not at the beginning of his ministry here. This is where Jesus is gaining reputation. Uh, people are coming to know him. He's been performing miracles now and teaching for quite some time. So I want you to imagine, although the intimacy of the event only mentions John, Jesus, Mary, that there would have been many others here which would have added to the pressure of serving and preparing And I want you to keep in mind as well, Luke records other instances where Jesus was in people's homes. And what's implied is that some of these other people were very, very wealthy. And so imagine Martha, if she was someone who had made a habit of being around Jesus, imagine she's been in other situations where she's seen Jesus in people's homes and it's like a well-oiled serving machine where Jesus is in a house, the disciples are there. The food comes out exactly when it needs to. Everybody's laughing. Everybody's fed. Everything just works. And the hosts of the event, they just, everything was organized so well. So now imagine you're Martha. And here you are struggling to get things ready. Nobody's getting food yet. They're all in the other room. And your sister, Mary, who you've expected to help you out here and understand the need of the moment, she's in the other room just sitting down with everybody else, 
leaving you to do all the serving all alone. And Martha, you just imagine, and as I've thought through this this week, I feel like more and more I can, I can feel Martha's tension as I think I felt similar tension rising in me in different situations. The tension becomes overwhelming. So in verse 40, you imagine Martha maybe after like crashing some plates down purposely to, you know, hey, I'm in here by myself, that she's working through her head that she's all alone here and her sister is just seemingly unconcerned that all of this is happening just at Martha's hands. She comes up to Jesus. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me, abandoned me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Now, I want you to keep something in mind here. Again, Martha loves the Lord. This is not someone who's just, a, I don't know, a sinner from the community learning about God for the first time. This is somebody who does love the Lord. You know, so I don't want to paint Martha in the wrong light, but I also want to be fair with what's implied here. Uh, look in verse 40 again here, the beginning. How does it first describe Martha in verse 40? She was distracted. Distracted from what? What does that imply? That Martha should have set her focus somewhere else. That maybe, maybe, it's fair to say that this wasn't a time to be serving. You know, that what, what was really important in this instance was not getting all the food out or making sure everybody was comfortable, but just being with the Lord where he was. And then the second thing here is generally when people accuse Jesus of something, that doesn't work out well. And when someone orders Jesus to do something, that also doesn't work out well. So really, there's, there's two approaches here, but I, I don't think we're just supposed to look at Martha's reaction and scoff or look down on it. I think the idea is we're to see a reflection of ourselves here, that really what's being illustrated through Mary in this event is an attitude that we inevitably have to deal with as, again, we want to serve, we want to do the right thing. Because mind you, was what she was doing inherently wrong? Absolutely not. She's serving. She's trying to serve people. She's trying to, she's trying to serve the Lord. But again, the nature of how she responds to the situation toward Mary, her attitude about that, again, there's a subtlety here that needs to be addressed. And by being addressed, she's able, I think, to grow profoundly as we see in the other accounts where Mary's involved or Martha is involved. So verse 41 Jesus responds in a way that I think is, is very gentle and very sweet and very kind, but it is corrective. And so he says, Martha, Martha, and I think this is meant to be very endearing, the repeating of her name twice. You are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part. Uh, the NIV would say the better thing, which shall not be taken away from her. One thing is necessary. You know, something that's amazed me in my past related to this passage, it's something that kind of, um, well, I think about it every time I read this passage. In Minnesota, uh, there was a camp that Christians would organize that was kind of like, it was a Bible-focused camp. Um, again, brethren would organize it every year. It was always very encouraging. Uh, well, many years ago, and I still lived in Minnesota, so this would be, this would be 15 years ago when this happened. Uh, at the last day of the camp, when everything uh, is getting cleaned up and everybody's got to clean the whole camp up, clean their cabins up, clean the cafeteria up, 
one of the brethren there who helps to organize the camp, who's an elder of one of the churches in Minnesota, I respect him enormously. As he's trying to quiet everybody down to make some important announcements, uh, he's got a lot he's taken care of. Some of the kids in the cafeteria were not quieting down. And he kept saying, quiet down. Well, he started talking, and they still weren't quieting down. He yelled at them. He said, hey! And it was scary. You're like, whoa! You know, I've never seen this brother, ever, <laughs> yell like that. And you know what he immediately did? I mean, immediately, he said, Martha, Martha. <sighs> I've reflected on that so much since then. And just how amazing it is that in that moment, he had meditated so deeply on this scripture where the moment, the first time I'd ever seen him lose his temper in that way, his immediate reaction was reflecting on Jesus's correction of Martha. And instead of thinking like, wow, how disappointing that he lost his temper. Instead, it was how amazing that he caught himself. How amazing that he reflected on this scripture. How amazing to be equipped to be humbled so readily. I thought that was an amazing example. I reflect on that every time I read this. Martha was worried and bothered about so many things, understandably so, but we need examples like this that we ourselves can reflect and learn and mature and recognize things within ourselves that really get in the way and hinder growing in the Lord in ways that without events like this, interactions like this, we're not equipped to catch ourselves and reflect on ourselves. So what I want to do for the rest of the lesson is kind of use these events to illustrate these principles. You know, that, that Martha was doing something that should be good. You know, she wasn't intending anything bad. She was, she was serving. But even serving can become something that results in being a stumbling block, uh, frustrating. How can we prevent that? And how can we make sure that we are aligning our priorities properly, maturing our priorities? That like what Jesus says in verse 42, one thing is necessary. You know, we can so easily stretch ourselves so thin, become so distracted and weighed down with so many things that just ultimately don't really matter, aren't really very important, and only one thing is ultimately necessary. I want to go back to Luke chapter 8, verse 14, as kind of building on this point of how important it is to recognize what's most important. And the principle from Luke eight fourteen is the idea that what is most important to the Lord are things that are often neglected for things that feel more urgent to us. You know, to Martha, serving felt urgent, but it wasn't the most important thing in that moment. It felt urgent, but it really wasn't what was most important. Luke 8, 14. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. Something that's been sticking with me since last week's Hebrews class, it's, it's something that uh, struck me as we were talking last week about, you know, by this time you ought to be teachers in Hebrews chapter 5. God has high expect expectations for our faith. Jesus was given not just so that we could have just a fundamental acceptance of who God is and information that's correct, but that we would mature. We are equipped to mature. In verse 14, things that in a worldly perspective are oftentimes they feel urgent. 
It's got to get done. The pressure is there. They can very easily, the things of this life, they can choke out the things that are most important. You know what's interesting? In Luke chapter 10, do you know the account that comes right before uh, Mary, Martha, and Jesus sharing a meal together? It's the Good Samaritan. Did you know that this principle is in the Good Samaritan? That there was a wisdom of neglect in that parable? You have a person who is beaten, robbed, and left half dead on the road. A priest stopped by, but whatever he had going on felt more urgent. A Levite walked by. Whatever he had going on, whatever appointment he had to keep, it felt more urgent. But what was more important? The Samaritan was willing to neglect whatever he had going on, however urgent it might have felt. He recognized what was most important. Jesus then would tell the scribe questioning him, go and do likewise, right? The reality is this. Godly priorities, spiritual things, they don't fit the worldly parameters oftentimes of what feels productive. I know that might sound strange, so I'm going to say it again. Godly things, spiritual priorities, they don't fit worldly parameters oftentimes of what feels productive. It's not stimulating or even entertaining or fulfilling like other things might be. Something as simple as Bible reading, which I know we all understand in principle how important Bible reading is. But I'll tell you, you know, my life is dedicated to the teaching of God's word. But sometimes, even for me just to personally read, not for sermon preparation, not for Bible class preparation, not for a personal Bible study, but for me just to read, there is very often a pressure, I've got to be doing something else. You know, I've got to be somewhere else. You know, just this, this rush of, you know, this isn't the most productive thing for me to do right now. But man, think about Luke 10. This is what I have to remind myself. I, I have to tell myself this in my mind. Based on Luke 10, is there anything more important than listening to the Lord? Is there anything more important than listening to the Lord? And I've had to tell myself from God's perspective, for me to read my Bible, for me and my relationship from God, from his perspective, is the most productive way that I can spend my time. And there is nothing more important than listening to the Lord. This is going to sound weird. Your marriage is not as important as listening to the Lord. Your kids are not as important as listening to the Lord. It is not Jesus among the many other things. It's just Jesus. And when it's only Jesus, he'll put everything else in its proper place. But it's got to be Jesus and only Jesus. Nothing is more important than listening to the Lord. What is this parable talking about? It's talking about the word of God falling on hearts. Nothing is more important than listening to the Lord. What's most important to the Lord is often neglected because other things feel so much more urgent. But that's where our faith comes in. We need to know how important things are to God. What does he value? What does he want? And sometimes I've got to stop and I've got to really, again, tell myself, even if I have to say it out loud, this is what is more important right now to God. All right. Sometimes applying our faith means actually doing less, slowing down, <laughs> focusing on fewer things. I know this might sound strange, you know, because oftentimes the thought is, I got to do better. I got to do more. There's nuance to this. Sometimes that's true. 
Sometimes we may be just spiritually being very lazy and we're actually neglecting doing anything. But sometimes the solution isn't, I've got to do more. I've got to do better. You know, I've got to focus on more things. I want to illustrate this. There's a brother I knew years ago. This brother worked two jobs to sustain his family and his wife worked two. Uh, he, he worked two jobs. When he got home, he would work on other projects when he would get home. And he spent very, very little time with his wife and nearly no time at all with his kids. Again, he worked two jobs, okay. But when he would get home, he would work on other projects. It felt productive, you know, doing things for the family, doing projects for the family, adding to the house for the family. And he would later reflect to me that his family life was in shambles because he was focusing on things that felt urgent and neglecting the things that were more important. Do you know what the solution for this brother was? Slow down. You're focusing on things you don't need to be focusing on. You're neglecting your family, your kids. And his kids would misbehave around him, and it was obvious it wasn't because there was a lack of discipline. This brother would spank his kids. He just wasn't spending time with his kids. We can't neglect what's most important by filling our time an overwhelming amount of things that feel productive and feel rewarding, we may be neglecting the more important things. Sometimes applying our faith means learning if it's not important to the Lord, it just doesn't need to be that important to me. I want to illustrate this with another example. Uh, My mother-in-law. So Eva's one of seven. Massive family. A lot of kids. (laughs) Well, I've heard Nina reflect on this, that when she was much younger, and the kids were all much younger, you know, she had her hands full. And she's reflected that one day, her husband came home, Bill. The house was a mess. (laughs) And she apologized. She felt so bad. She felt so ashamed that the house was in shambles and messy when he got home. So she, she apologized. She apologized. She felt so bad. And Bill slowed her down. And said, well, have you spent time with the kids? Have you been taking care of the kids? And she said, yeah, that's what I've been filling my time with. That's what I've been busy doing. And he said, then you've done your job. Let the house be in shambles. You know, does God care about how clean your house is? You know, we may have a worldly-minded way of thinking about being a homemaker. You know, maybe to take care of your kids, to spend time with your kids, the house isn't going to be as clean as you wish it would be. It's not going to be as clean as other people's houses, maybe. You know, some people are weird superheroes where they literally can do everything somehow, and I don't know how they do it. You know, there's preachers I know like that. They sleep for four hours, you know, and they spend 20 hours in the day productively, and I wish I could, but that's, I just, that's, I can't do that, right? So there, again, there may be mothers who are superheroes, but that may not be you, right? What Nina had to learn, and I'll tell you, it was such a blessing to her to learn this, The priority isn't the cleanliness of the home. It's the kids who are in the home, right? How can this be applied to hospitality? You know, is cleanliness the most important thing about hospitality? And I want to say right now, is a clean home a bad thing? Is it wrong to like clean up a bit when people are over? But can a compulsion toward cleanliness hinder hospitality? Can it make hospitality more of a burden than a blessing? Can it make the thought of people coming over more of a burden than a blessing? You know, can the thought of, you know, people seeing your environment when it's not spick and span, 
make you feel very insecure. You know, again, there's, there's nothing wrong with wanting to clean up a bit. But I'll tell, I, I've told many of you this. I'm more comfortable in a person's home when it's messy. It makes me very uncomfortable when somebody thinks they've got to do all this work just to have me in their home. That makes me uncomfortable, right? What's the most important thing about hospitality is the people, not the food, not the cleanliness, not getting the, the clothes off the couch. Those are not the most important things about hospitality. And again, we're not talking about right and wrong. We're talking about what's most important and being more mature spiritually to pursue the things that are better. What is most important? How can we focus more on what, what is important to the Lord and realizing if it's not as important to the Lord, it doesn't need to be as important to me. So again, we often make ourselves feel unnecessarily overwhelmed because we're making ourselves feel overwhelmed. You know, we're just thinking the wrong way. We make ourselves feel guilty when we don't need to feel guilty. We feel frustrated when we don't need to feel frustrated. You know, did Martha in that event, did she need to feel overwhelmed? I would say, no, she didn't. Did she need to get frustrated with Mary? She didn't need to get frustrated with Mary. That was something she was making herself feel. I want to illustrate this again with another event. Uh, so Cody LaChapelle was a member who was here. He moved away in 2021. Uh, Cody and his wife, they're a couple of these superhero people. And I, I mean that in a good way. Like Cody and his wife can do so much. It's, a, it's, a, it's amazing. Well, Cody, he was like a supervisor nurse in the military. He went to Maryland uh, to go to school there, particularly there were classes he needed to take um, for the sake of his career path. Well, you know, kept up with Cody a bit. And on one of our conversations, he reflected to me. Uh, we were talking about how each other is doing, and this is something that had been going on with Cody. He's, he's not in Maryland anymore. He moved to Texas, by the way. So this was some time ago. But he mentioned something he had been learning. He had been striving for all A's in his classes. And he realized his relentlessness to get all A's was not important. He didn't need all A's to pass his classes, to get the diploma that he needed to get what he needed out of his schooling. He didn't need all A's. And he realized that in trying to get all A's, he was spending more time than he needed on study, on homework assignments. And again, is it wrong to study for a school that you're taking? None of that's wrong. It's about what's better, what's most important. What Cody realized, he could pull back significantly and get lower grades, and that's okay because then he can focus on his kids and his family. And he had told me he had been justifying, it's just for a time, it's just for a time. And he realized it's not even worth that. It's not even worth neglecting my family even for a time. Uh, I haven't talked to Cody over the phone since he moved to Maryland, but I'm sure that all worked out. Uh, but again, even with Cody being a person who, you know, he just, he does so much, he realized he had to pull back. You know, he's making himself feel overwhelmed and frustrating things, but it just wasn't that important. Here's a quote from an older brother that has been sticking with me. I've brought it up to others and they've found this to be true. Please listen. The people who think everything has to be perfect are the people who struggle the most. The people who think everything has to be perfect are the people who struggle the most. We can have too many expectations that are not balanced when reality is things get messy, people are messy, life is messy, the people who get frustrated most easily, they struggle the most. 
because the people who think everything has to be perfect are constantly frustrated, frustrated with themselves, frustrated with others, frustrated with their circumstances. That's so often me. You know, I care about what I invest myself in and I constantly have to reel in my attitude about things. Eva has to help me with my attitude about things. Feeling guilty of things where I don't need to feel that guilt. There's, you know, it's not like I'm doing anything wrong. Oftentimes it's, I, I need to do better. I could be doing it. I could talk to this person better. I could have said a better thing. And it's like, maybe just be joyful <laughs> that God let you do what you could <laughs> and trust that God can bless that little tiny effort you made and you can learn from it. You know, oftentimes there's just even a different attitude we can apply to the things we're involving ourselves in to hone it in and think in a healthier, more biblical way. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. And this is the the last scripture we'll look at here, and we'll just make some points from this passage. You know, and this is kind of taking it further. It's this idea, this principle of of choosing the better thing, right? How, again, there's nuance to this that really in this lesson, I'm just trying to equip you. I can't micromanage for you what this is going to look like for your life every day. But I think there are principles here that can equip you to apply this, to learn to value, discern, and choose the more excellent things in Christ. We need to value those things. We need to look for and recognize those opportunities. We need to choose them. And again, this is not based on a worldly metric that the more excellent thing is always being busier, doing more, stretching yourself thinner. You know, think about Jesus's crucifixion and how productive that was. And it sure didn't look productive. When Job had everything taken away from him and he was struggling with, this just doesn't feel productive, God, that you would take this away and not be giving it back as soon as I make supplication. Job helped more people through his brokenness than ever through his abundance. Anyway, Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And this is a prayer. And this I pray that you that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You know, this is a way of thinking, right? So you look at verse 9. How does love abound? In real knowledge. You know, we need to apply information. We got to know the information. We need to be informed, right? So we need to carry God's will with us, but we also need to have all discernment. We need to recognize situations where we're just not thinking correctly, where we could be thinking better. And then in verse 10, to approve the things that are excellent. I need to be willing to do it. I need to recognize it. I need to know about it. But I've got to be willing to do it as well. So this is, this is a battle of the mind. And what Jesus was addressing in Martha was a battle of the mind. You know, again, John 12, we would see Martha later serving where Jesus was present. But there's no contention. There's no frustration because Jesus had addressed the heart of the problem and gotten her into a different way of thinking. So I just want to ask some questions um, that are meant to equip you. So the first one is this. The principles of this lesson, uh, should this change what worries and bothers you? Should this change what worries and bothers you? You know, what I've noticed with things like anger, it is rare that someone will call their own anger into question and ask themselves, you know, is this worth being angry about? <laughs> you know, am I, am I justified in this anger? We too easily justify those things. And I think frustration is the same thing. John talked on Wednesday, it pointed to G, John's over there. John talked on Wednesday about 
uh, the plank being in our own eye in Matthew chapter 7. You know, where was the plank in Martha's perspective? Initially, it was Mary. But Jesus told Martha, it's your thinking. Mary's not the problem. How you're thinking is the problem. You know, and Jesus, I don't know if you've, you noticed this, he did something dangerous. Martha was embittered against Mary. And Jesus exalted Mary to Martha. The reason that's dangerous is that could cultivate jealousy. I think he's trusting that Martha's going to think about it the right way, right? Martha's plank was in her own eye, and there wasn't even really a speck in Mary's eye. We need to call our frustrations into question. You know, we need to be in the moment. And I think frustration can oftentimes come when we're not really being present, we're not really being in the moment. Uh, with Eva, this happens very often where there'll be a lot of things going on. And I notice when I feel the pressure of things outside of the moment, if Eva brings me something that is more emotionally difficult, my patience is very thin <laughs> because I'm thinking about all of these other things I've got to get to and having to slow down to consider this difficult thing. You know, just I don't have time for this right now. You slow down, think differently. Sometimes the issue is we're carrying things we don't need to carry into the moment. We're really just not being present, right? When we think about these principles, we just need to think, is this, is it right for me to be so worried, so bothered, so frustrated? You know, the things that I'm really investing my concern and my care into, is it really worth this emotional taxation that I'm allowing it to have over me? You know, things like politics, you know, is it worth the frustration, the anxiety that it brings? We just have to be aware. Is it important? Is it really worth it? allowing that to worry me and bother me. Should this change your priorities and your ambitions? You know, oftentimes these things just need to be honed in. You know, we need to be a kingdom-first people, even a simple people. Uh, there's a brother named Kevin Clark. Uh, ben and Stacy would know Kevin Clark, right? Kevin Clark, yes. Uh, so he's a brother. I think he's still living in Alabama. He does a lot of gospel meetings. He's, he's a lawyer. Um, I was listening to a sermon from Kevin, Kevin just this past week, a uh, gospel meeting he did um, at a congregation in Alabama. He's a lawyer, and he reflected on this. He said, in any career, there is a ceiling. There's only so far you can go before you start compromising God's will. He reflected on the fact that even in going to colleges, you know, that he had a dream college that was the best college he could imagine for getting a degree in his field. He was very excited when he got accepted. Got accepted to the college, brought it to his dad, and his dad said, well, his dad asked, is there a local church near that college? And he said, no. Uh, and although Kevin was younger and excited about that, he didn't go to that college because his parents were trying to train him to think about the kingdom first. What's more important? What's the more excellent thing, right? Going back to Philippians 1, verse 9, what kind of decisions help love abound more and more? And can we make decisions without our ambitions? We are diminishing love or we're not abounding in love for the sake of worldly ambition. We're diminishing love and the opportunity of love and our involvement with the brethren, right? Think about with your kids. Is it, again, the most important thing that your kids get straight A's and succeed to the uttermost academically? You know, again, with uh, schooling and trying to listen to older brethren, there's an older brother, again, that I respect greatly. I remember him. This really impacted me. He said his child brought them a report card. His kids went to public school, brought a report card home. He looked at the report card and said, well, this isn't very exciting, and he, would, and he gave it back. 
Not because they got straight A's, he just, he didn't care. He cared about his kids being hard workers. He cared about his kids being godly. He certainly wasn't raising his kids to be lazy, but he certainly didn't want to give his kids the impression that it's straight A's or nothing. You got to keep excelling. You got to keep growing. You got to do the best. You got to be the best, right? And I've mentioned this, but it's been a long time ago. I remember brethren saying things like, a Christian should be the best employee in their environment. That messed with me because in environments I've worked in, that was impossible. Because the people around me were willing to spend all their time at work. They were willing to cut corners for work. They were willing to be aggressive and relentless and inappropriate in that aggressiveness to succeed. I wasn't willing to go there. And in my environment, I couldn't be the best. And so when people would say, God expects you to be the best employee at your workplace, I would think, well, I'm failing because I'm not the best at my workplace, right? But you can't define that idea in the Bible. What you can find is do your work for the Lord, work heartily, you know, care about your work, invest in your work. But there are things that are more important. There's things that are more important than work. There's things that are more important than money and career and school and academic excellence and sports and whatever. There's things that in the kingdom, if we are really going to be serious about being kingdom first people, there will need to be a negligence that may make you feel like you're being left behind or you're not able to succeed like everyone else's. Things aren't able to be as successful as other people that are around you. We really need to plant our feet. We need to root ourselves deeply in the foundation of godly principles, priorities, and ambitions. Should this change how you invest in people? There's two ways I think this happens initially here. One way is, like I said, for some people it may mean you need to invest more in people. Again, Philippians 1, verse 9. What we're talking about is love abounding more and more. That's the more excellent thing. You know, if you're not deeply investing in the brethren, that's God's priority. That is a a highest priority in the umbrella of God's kingdom is our involvement with God's people. Sometimes to love, for love to abound more and more means I need to invest more. I do need actually to do more. But it may actually mean pulling back, like was mentioned. Maybe there's things that are less important that you're investing in that just don't need your time or attention. It's taking your time away from your family. Maybe your attention isn't on your kids like it should be. There's another brother who's mentioned something in a parenting lesson years ago. It was a study. Um, I can't remember the group or the magazine or whatever, the network that did the study, but this was a, a sermon on parenting, and he, he brought up a study where they put microphones in people's homes, and they, they volunteered, you know, they volunteered to get the microphones in their homes. But the, the study was, are fathers talking to their kids? And what the study found is the parents that they recorded, the only way they talked to their kids was instructive or corrective. No conversation. It was either do this, do that, go here, don't do this, stop it, be quiet. No conversation. Do kids need conversation? (laughs) I would argue yes. Uh, This should change how we invest in people. You know, brethren need real conversation. Our kids need real conversation. My wife needs me to really talk to her, not just watch TV with her. Even I do watch stuff, right? But there's times where it's like, we just need to talk. Even if it feels awkward and like we're not being entertained and we don't know what to talk about right now, just let yourself sit and talk. People need conversation. Kids, 
Kids need conversation from their parents. They need to be talked to by their parents. We need to place priorities where God places them. And what this, again, may mean is some things in your life need to be less important. Some things you're spending your time on, you don't need to be spending your time on those things. Maybe even some hobbies you have, you need to invest in it a little bit less. Be less invested, less concerned, spend less time on it. And give people, give the Lord that time. I know, again, there's, there's nuance, there's balance, but I hope these principles at least convict and equip and encourage you. We'll say a word of prayer, and then after the prayer, we'll stand and sing the invitation song if there's any needs that need to be brought forward. If you'll pray with me.